Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. To ask what is our aim, I can answer in one word, victory. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. Sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire. Welcome to the Lead Different Podcast. First and foremost, I want to thank all of you who've been listening to our podcast, especially this last series that we've been doing, William DeResowitz. I think it's been, um, I don't want to overuse the word epic, but it feels pretty epic. Uh, I've had a chance to read uh, all of his uh, books, and uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, articles uh, or essays that he wrote on solitude and leadership And I hope at some point to be able to get that out to you. But for now, we've got these three podcasts. They're in a series. And if you look on Lead Different, you'll see we have an article uh, posted there that really uh, puts them all together in one package. So you have them right there, along with a little bit of, uh, you know, me sharing that this is a special uh, opportunity to be able to listen to um, William DeResowitz, the uh, New York Times bestselling author. And our final episode is about the cultural importance of artists and the arts. Now, before you think I'm not an artist and I don't practice the arts, all of us uh, have favorite artists, uh, have entertainment, have things that we like to watch and listen to that inspire us, whether it's paintings, whether it's music or movies, whatever it may be, Broadway shows, we all have an interest. Uh, Podcasts that we listen to, writers that we read, blogs, um, whatever it may be. And in this, he talks about really the challenge that is before uh, artists, because in this world that Silicon Valley has built, which I'm from Silicon Valley, so I love it, uh, it's made it in some ways more difficult. And we've got to figure some of these things out. But at the same time, it's really this episode, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech is the book. The episode title is The Cultural Importance of Artists in the Arts. It's all about because big tech has removed the gatekeepers to creating and distributing art. Digital content monetization is down to near zero. Artists have difficulty making a living or making art. One of the things that William DeResowitz said, Bill DeResowitz said is, I don't try to convince people that they should value art. I show them that they already value art. What's really cool, after that uh, wonderful quote, you can see what applies. What Bill does in the podcast is he contrasts two statistics. 96% of Americans agree with the statement that the arts contribute a lot of value to society. But when it comes to, you know, their payment, only about 27% are significantly interested or paying attention to, concerned about, or willing to pay. They just think, oh, they're doing fine. They're rich. They're fine. Artists articulate and communicate emotionally what we are unable to do ourselves. So this podcast, really, it's a podcast for anybody who's thinking about how the world's culture flows and changes and moves. And so here you are, episode three, William DeResowitz, he allowed me to call him Bill, which I feel pretty cool about, on the cultural importance of arts and the artist. I just want to jump in if you got a few more minutes. Oh, yeah. Oh, this okay. is great. Okay, great. I'm enjoying I, this a lot. Uh, I, I, um, the, the death of an artist, when I picked mm. it up, I was like, I, I don't consider myself an artist uh, at all, but um, I picked it up and I was like, no, wh- why, why, why am I, I going to read this book? Like, what's this book going to do for me? Right. Uh, and then I started reading it and I was like, this book is about me in so many ways. And I think part of it is, 
uh, and I'm, I'm going to say a few things and then I'll ask a question. Sure. Part of it is the death of an artist made me think about fear because one of the things I'm doing is, is building out properties, trying to see if I can't and our team can't contribute to helping people. And maybe get into publishing not just articles and podcasts, but books and seeing where it all leads, right? But I, I don't think this was like a major thing in my head, but it was in there. When I read the book, I found out how hard that is. And I found out how many odds are stacked against people. And then it made me a little irritated because I was like, wait a minute, that's the very thing I feel society needs. I feel what you talked about, about citizenship. When I was, you know, I'm, I'm older than a lot of my listeners, but when I was in uh, high school, I got citizenship awards and, and, and you got that and you were like, oh, I got a citizenship award, you know, and that means I've come to school and I treat people right. And that was a thing, you know, civics class was a thing. Um, so I want to make that kind of contribution to people today as best I can on my small local level. But when I read Death of an Artist, it made me afraid and say, wow, this is a much tougher thing to do. It's always been difficult, but it's much tougher to do with, uh, what was I reading? I want to just say, um, The Death of an Artist. There are two stories you hear about making a living as an artist in the digital age, and they're diametrically opposed. One comes from Silicon Valley and its boosters in the media. There's never been a better time to be an artist that goes, if you've got a laptop and you've got a recording studio, if you've got an iPhone, you've got a movie camera, GarageBand, Final Cut Pro, all the tools are at your fingertips, and if production is cheap, distribution is free. And I read that and I thought, yeah, it, it, that's not true. And I think some of my friends down here, we went, oh yeah, that's not true. In a sense, we're selling people a bill of goods that's not real. And if we let, and I, I'm going to let you talk about this. If we eliminate artists capacity to influence society, I didn't look up the quote, but John Kennedy, I sat in the John Kennedy presidential library and he said, he talked about the importance of the artist to culture and I think some of what we're missing, even with all the, the racism, Asians against blacks, some of what we're missing is there's a deep cultural chasm where we don't know how to fix ourselves culturally because we don't have the relationships, we don't have the depth, and we're mm-hmm. squelching the artists, whether it's music, it's paintings, it's books, etc. But maybe you can talk about, I think, the threat that it is and also the, the, the two stories. That may be too much, but no, no, no. I'm no, I'm believe me, I'm happy to do it, especially to an audience that includes people from Silicon Valley. Well, you got it. So the first story is the one that you said, Silicon Valley story for 20, 25 years now. Never been a better time. The tools are all out there. You can circumvent the gatekeepers, you can appeal directly to an audience, and you can monetize that audience. You can find a way to make a living. The other story is the story that artists tell. And by artists in this book, I mean musicians and visual artists and writers and people who make film and television, basically all artists. Right. Um, Yeah, you can just put your stuff out there, but no one's going to pay you for it. Like, that's the first problem, (laughs) right? right? The same Silicon Valley that's given us these tools and this access has also driven the price of digital content down to zero or near zero. So you can go on YouTube and listen to pretty much any song you want and not pay a cent. And YouTube, if it pays anything to the musician, and it may not pay anything at all, the average per stream, per, you know, per listen, mm-hmm. is thought to be, uh, best guess that we have, because they don't tell us, seven hundredths of a cent per stream. Wow. That means if, so, if your music is streamed a million times, which sounds like a lot, 
you will get $700. Wow. People can't live like this. And we could say the same thing across the arts. It's digital demonetization. So I talk in the book a lot about what this means for artists and how artists have adjusted. And there's crowdfunding sites, Kickstarter, Patreon, and people are very resourceful. And the people I interviewed for the book, well over 100 artists are really admirable human beings who are managing at some level or another to make it work. Some of them are on food stamps. Some of them are making six figures. But the, the headline is, the, the overriding message is that it's actually extremely hard now uh, for the reasons I just talked about. And then another reason is that so many people have been drawn into doing this because of Silicon Valley's propaganda. There's never been a better time. Um, I just heard the other week that every day now, 40,000 songs are put up on Spotify every day, 40,000 songs a day. That's 14 and a half million a year. Sheesh. Over a million self-published books are put on the Kindle reading platform every year. Everyone's trying to do this. More and more slices of a smaller pie. Um, also, the cost of living is much higher than it used to be. Yes. You, know, you can't be the bohemian living on the margins of society, working a part-time minimum wage job and making your art. Minimum wage pays less. Rent is 62% higher than it was in 2000. That's adjusted for inflation, 62%. Sheesh. Yes. So what are we, what are we, what's at stake here for all of us who aren't artists? It's exactly what you said. We count on artists for generations. Now we've counted on artists to do the things that we've been, we were talking about earlier in our conversation. Give us those perspectives that we don't otherwise have. Tell us things that we haven't thought of and don't want to hear. Speak truth, not just to power, but to the audience. And I think you and I have both talked about Fitzgerald, Dostoevsky, Homer, Jane Austen, how important those experiences have been in helping blow our minds open and become different people. And we're at risk of losing that because if the market is so difficult for artists to negotiate, their work is going to have to become more and more marketable to the extent more and more commercial. There's not going to be the opportunity to kind of work in your studio, work at your desk for years, honing your vision, you know, developing, looking deeply inside yourself for those truths. You've got to put stuff out there every day, right? you know, every week, a new drawing every day, a new song every week, a new story every month. I mean, this is, this is stuff that I heard from artists. Wow. So we need to do things to make, to, to change the arts economy for all of our own sakes. You know, it's an interesting thing. I, I had a course, uh, that would talk, it was a, I don't know, a religious symbols and art course, but it was basically an art course. And, um, and I did, I've never, I can't draw. I can't, I mean, it just, when I was in kindergarten, I figured it out. I just like, you know, I'm not going to be a contributor in this way. But when I started learning about art, they talked about high art, low art, various things like that. And I'm not absolutely not an expert. Uh, but, I don't think I had appreciated till that moment how much we need it. And they talked about the Holocaust and I have a book on it, but I can't remember the artist's name, uh, start with a C that, that did a lot of art around the pogroms, things like that. Like there's so many things I think a, a lot of us aren't even educated about what artists do that go beyond say giving a speech that change culture. And, um, I felt, I've, I've, I feel like one of the things that I'd like you to say a little bit more about is the need to be willing to understand that art goes beyond an action movie and that it does something for society that 
maybe we didn't appreciate before, but we're losing. And I don't know if you could give us an example or a story to do that, but it would be helpful. Well, you know, I don't, don't try to convince people that they should value art. Okay. No, here's what I, here's what I do. I show them that they already value art. So first of all, there's this amazing stuff. Unfortunately, I came across this study after I'd finished the book. The Urban Institute did this like 20 years ago. I'm not sure if they asked about other occupations as well, but uh, one of the findings of the study was that uh, 96% of Americans, 96% agree with the statement that the arts contributes a lot of value to society. 96%. If you ask them if artists contribute a lot, only 27% think they do. (laughs) How is this possible? Where do people think art comes from? This is why this is the, this is the problem at the heart of the arts economy. But let's just go back to that first number. Okay. okay? Yeah, let's do it. I don't need people to read Dostoevsky if Dostoevsky doesn't work for them. I think, look, there's a lot of junk entertainment that people consume, superhero movies and pop songs and so forth. But I think almost everyone also the most important place in their heart is for the art that really goes deep for them. And that can mean it's going to be different for everybody. And I'm not going to judge people's choices. But when you have a musician that really speaks to you, you listen to them every day for years. They're like, you know, you worship them. So I don't need to convince people. I'm willing to let the other 4% go. We all value the arts already. Wow. We just have to think about how we do, which art do we value? Like how much do we really value that pop song that comes and goes in a few weeks and we forget even what it was a year later versus the stuff that we, that we hold close to our heart for our whole lives and recognize that if we want to, to keep having that second kind of thing, we need to think about how artists are going to make a living doing what they do because they can't do it otherwise. Oh, wow. That's fit. So I can't talk too much about my daughter. She won't want me talking about her on the podcast, okay. but you made me think about her. She loves rap. She loves it. And uh, which, you know, I was like, wow, you do. And she loved this guy, Juice World, who died and uh, of, of an overdose. It was a sad story. Uh, and she, but she gets me to listen to all of her music, even when I don't want to. She'll send it to me. Hey, you got to listen to this. You got to hear it. You got to understand it. So I started liking Juice World, and I realized that he basically is a guy who communicates emotion and that, 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 that he's able to articulate, and I think artists do this, they were able to communicate and articulate things that we feel but can't articulate ourselves and can't communicate ourselves, which brings me around to one of the things you said at the beginning, and then I have one more question for you, but, and that is that art makes you listen. As I'm listening to you now, I go, art makes you listen for the most part. We stop. We hear it, we see it, we read it, we imagine based on what we see, and it makes you listen. And that's one of the beautiful things I think about culture. And right now, America's not, we're having a hard time listening to each other. And it makes me say, ah, we don't want artists to be gone because they're, you know, I think about, I couldn't stand two artists sound when I was in college and high school, Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. I was like, oh my gosh. As I got older, they became two of my favorites. And I, I, I didn't know it at the time, but they could tell a story. And that story made me think about what I'd been through because when I was young, I hadn't suffered. But as I got older, I suffered. And then I was like, because my parents, you know, they did a lot for me and that's nice, but, you know, I was shielded from stuff. 
But then all of a sudden I listened to them after suffering. I was like, now I know what Bob Dylan's saying. Now I know what Springsteen's saying. I keep my mouth shut. I open my mind and things happen. But I really, I really love that book. And we're going to make sure that we list all the books in the show notes, folks. I, I may be going too fast for you to capture all the titles, but they're going to be there and you can get these books and we'll share on our Facebook page. We'll share on Twitter. We'll get it out to you so you'll be able to grab them all. But I have one final question for uh, uh, Bill DeResowitz and you've been generous to us today. I'm really grateful. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, I think I've learned uh, more about how to think about society and how to think about it in a way, not judging it, but trying to educate it about things that maybe it can explore, not telling them what they're exploring is wrong. But one of the things I thought a lot about, and I have a lot of books about it, is being a public intellectual. And this is just, this is me, this is my question. I'm indulging myself a little bit, folks, because I really wanted to ask you this. I've read a lot about them, looked at them, and I feel that a lot of them uh, throughout the years, uh, maybe you could argue centuries, depending upon who you classify as a public intellectual, they have been, I don't necessarily consider them artists, maybe they are, but they have shaped, they've shaped the world with their ideas. And probably in my own little local way, I look and I go, I'd like to influence the world with ideas, not make it do stuff, but influence it with ideas. I don't count myself as a public intellectual, but what do you consider to be, and maybe you don't even consider them to be real. I know David Brooks goes, I'm not a public intellectual. What do you consider to be a public intellectual? And what would you tell students about why that might be valuable and why that might be a pursuit that they could take on in a way to make a difference in the world? That's just me indulging myself but I got you, so I'm going to ask that last okay. question. Well, I also don't like to call myself a public intellectual because I have so much esteem for that phrase, and I also feel like it's been really overused. Like, to me, it's a really, really high bar. Hmm. And there were these sort of great public intellectuals in the middle of the 20th century, kind of this great age, people I read a lot. Um, I, I, I'm not fit to tie their shoelaces. Right. But I would say... Part of the thing is that, that, okay, a lot of people get called public intellectuals now who are just people who talk a, a lot in public, uh, people who maybe are journalists or ex-journalists who have opinion columns. And some of them I like, but, you know, that doesn't exactly qualify. And then another category that um, are academics with, with a certain area of expertise who are good at addressing the public. And that's great too, but I don't also, I also don't consider them public intellectuals. I think a public intellectual is someone who's able to think on a broad range of topics concerning society and culture and morality in a way that's creative, that's powerful, um, but that's also accessible, right? Mm -hmm. So the third kind of person who's not a public intellectual is sort of a brilliant philosopher or social thinker who isn't capable of communicating effectively to a larger public because they've been disciplined within an academic environment and they sort of talk in an academic language that's not really accessible. So to have that combination of someone who's really smart and learned and also can articulate and can speak on a broad range of topics is rare. But I will say, and this is just, I wouldn't have said this a month ago, but I've started to listen to more and more podcasts now. And I know there are literally, literally well over a million podcasts. Right. But um, I think also, quite frankly, as um, heterodox views become less acceptable to be expressed in academia 
and in the media and the most interesting sort of opinion writers get pushed out and now they're on stub Substack and they have their own podcasts. Right. I think I'm not going to say a golden age of public intellectuals. That's way too overblown, but I think more and more people are doing this. Um, you know, I listen to Glenn Larry a lot now and Glenn Larry and John McWhorter, they're both, you know, an economist and a linguist yeah. Ivy League professors, but they have a broad, broad outlook and they're great at, at talking at a very high level. Yeah. That's the other thing is that uh, mainstream news outlets don't allow you to talk at this kind of level. The old public intellectuals from the 50s and 60s were writing for literary journals that had a few hundred or a couple of thousand readers, but their influence diffused all over the, you know, diffused, you know, from that point. Right. Their readers influenced people and so forth. Now we have podcasts. They may also have a few thousand listeners only, but we now, in other words, we now have the kind of thing in a different form that we haven't had for a long time. I love that. And I think it's wonderful. And it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a, is it an ambition to pursue as a young person? I don't think you arrive at a public, being a public intellectual by deciding to be one. I just learned that. <laughs> but, uh, I, I just got a master class right there in they exist, but being one is not something you uh, pull off the career shelf and say, hey, I think I'll become that. Yeah, I love that. Your answer is brilliant. This has been Bill DeResowitz. He spent a generous amount of time with us. As I've mentioned, he writes uh, the essay and book, The Death of Friendship. His most recent book is The Death of the Artist. You got to check it out. It'll surprise you, especially if you're in Silicon Valley working at, uh, at, at one of the great companies or one of the small startups. Check it out because it'll make you think differently about creativity and artistry because a lot of people who work in Silicon Valley are musicians as well, believe it or not. And then Excellent Sheep which I, it made me rethink uh, even what I tell students I run into about education, how to think about education, getting a full one. And the one that I almost didn't read, but said, let me give it a look, uh, Jane Austen Education, and I was surprised to find so much treasure there. Uh, he also has several other essays. One of my favorites that I haven't actually finished, uh, The American Scholar, Solitude on Leadership. That's probably the one I need to read the most, but you can check that out. We'll be putting all kinds of information out over the next couple of weeks that allow you to find Bill's website, his books, uh, and any other podcast he's been on too. Uh, and uh, your a TED Talk, I, we, we talked about that this morning. Thank you very much. This is Lead Different. You can check out our site at leaddiff.com. You can check out other podcasts that uh, I do on the side, Russell Off the Cuff. Uh, and thanks again to Bill for joining us. Thank you so much, Russ. This really was great. 